Please turn in your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John, chapter 10. And I'll read, beginning at verse 26, down through verse 30. Jesus says, verse 26, But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This morning we began to look at these words of Jesus through the lens of what we call the doctrines of grace or sometimes the five points of Calvinism. Sometimes they are identified by the acrostic of Tulip. And this morning we looked at the first of these doctrines, which is the T in Tulip, which stands for total depravity, which we saw to be the cause of the unbelief of the Jews in verse 26. Any study of the doctrine of total depravity should always lead us to the question, what hope can there be for the salvation of any man or woman? How can anyone be saved? And the answer to that question cannot be found in ourselves. It must be found in God alone. The only answer to our desperate situation caused by our sin must be from him and what he alone can do. And so this brings us to the second of these five doctrines of grace, which is really the very first step in God's way of salvation, without which there could be no salvation. And this is the you in tulip, which is what is called unconditional election. In unconditional election, God the Father in eternity, out of the spiritually lost and ruined human race, chose a people to be saved, and he gave them, he entrusted them to his beloved Son for their salvation. And this is what Jesus speaks of here in the beginning of verse 29. He says, My Father who has given them to me. He speaks of his sheep and of the Father's eternal election of them to be saved. He is the good shepherd. The Father has chosen the sheep and given them to him. My Father has given them to me. There was this agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity that there would be a way of salvation. The Father elected those who would be saved He gave them to his beloved son to accomplish their salvation. And the Holy Spirit now comes to apply that salvation to them. The father's election was out of pure love and mercy by his kind intention and his goodwill alone. 
for lost sinners. Many object to the idea of God's election, and they say that salvation must be left to the free will of man rather than the will of God. But man has no free will, as we saw this morning. Man's will is bound unsin by his sinful nature. And from himself he is unable to believe, to even believe for salvation. And if there were no election of God the Father, then there would be no salvation for the human race, and there no one would be saved, and all the human race would perish in sin The doctrine of election has never been, and it is never a controversial topic in the Bible. It is rather a matter of joy and celebration that God would even do such a thing for lost sinners. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And the first blessing is his election, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The Father's election is sometimes called his predestination, In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Jesus often spoke of his people as his elect. Luke chapter 18 and verse 7. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night and will he delay long over them? And Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So the Bible also often speaks of God's elect. And that's who Jesus speaks of here in the beginning of verse 29. My father, my father who has elected them, my sheep, and he has given them to me. Sometimes people think God is unjust if he elects some to be saved and not others. The answer to this objection is that if God is to be just, then we would all suffer the wrath of God for our sins for all eternity. The fact that he will have mercy on anyone is the most astonishing thing in all the world. And if he chooses to have mercy upon anyone, should it not be his decision upon whom he will have mercy? All one needs to do is read Romans chapter 9, where God's election is so clearly set forth. Verse 11, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
We are all guilty before the holiness of God. We all deserve his righteous judgment for our sins. And none of us have any claim on his mercy. And he alone has the right to have mercy upon whomever he wills. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. For those who object to God's sovereign election, Paul answers them this way in Romans chapter 9 in verse 20. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So this is God's election, which Jesus declares in verse 29, my father who has given them to me. We call it unconditional election. By unconditional, we mean that God's choice of his people was without any conditions on our part. It is not based on anything foreseen in us or anything that we have done or will ever do. He is completely free and sovereign, and his choice is uninfluenced by anything outside of himself. His election is based on his own will and not ours, out of his love and kind intention. The reason why he chooses one and not another is known only to him in his mysterious and unsearchable will. And it is perhaps something that we will never know. All we can do if we are believers in our Lord Jesus Christ and we are among, therefore we are among his elect, all we can do is to respond in wonder and love and praise for such great mercy. This is the beginning, this is the only beginning of salvation. This is the source, and this is the only way that there can be any salvation in this lost world with God's sovereign election in eternity. My Father has elected my sheep, and he has given them to me for salvation. So we have the first two doctrines of grace in the acrostic tulip. We have the T, which is total depravity. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You are not able to believe in your sin And then we have the you, unconditional election, my Father who has given them to me. We come to the third letter, which is L, meaning limited atonement. Speaking of the death of Christ, the death of Jesus was an atonement. It was a propitiation for human sin. At the cross, Jesus paid the penalty, and he suffered the death due to sinners to take away their sins in his death upon the cross. The question here is, what was God's design, God's purpose in the death of Jesus Christ? 
For whom did Jesus suffer? And for whose sins did he die and take them away? If we say that he died for every man and woman who has ever lived in this world, then we must admit that his death was in large degree a very great failure because he has suffered for a vast number of people their sins. He has suffered for a vast number of people in his death upon the cross, but his death upon the cross did them no good because they now suffer in hell for their sins as well. Christ suffered on the cross for them. It accomplished nothing for them. Now they suffer for their own sins again for eternity in hell. But such a thing would be unjust for God to punish man's sins twice, once in the death of his son on the cross and then again in their own persons under his wrath forever in hell. The death of Jesus was a limited Atonement. It was a definite and purposeful atonement for a particular group of people whom he calls his sheep. In verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He did not lay down his life for every man and woman who ever lived. He laid down his life for a particular group of people, his sheep. God's elect from eternity, whom the Father had given to him. The Father chose them. The Father entrusted them to the Son. The Son came into the world and suffered the penalty for their sins in his death upon the cross. And what this means is that when Jesus died upon the cross, he paid in full the penalty of the sins of all of his sheep, all of God's elect. And once their penalty was paid, their salvation was accomplished. And it would be impossible for God to ever punish their sins again. Their salvation is secure when Christ died for the sheep on the cross Did the death of Christ make salvation only possible? No, the death of Christ made salvation certain and secure for the sheep. And there are a great many of his sheep in the world. Jesus spoke in this way in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, not for all, for many. At the Last Supper, he took the cup in his hand. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11, my servant will justify the many as he bear their iniquities. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So this is the way the Bible speaks so often that the death of Christ was not for all men. It was for the sheep. It was for many. It is true. The Bible speaks of the world. God so loved the world. 
And he was the Savior. Jesus is the Savior of the world. The term the world is used ten different ways in John's Gospel alone. We do not have time to go through all of them. But we would be wrong to assume that when the Bible speaks of the world that it automatically means every man and woman who has ever lived in this world. What it often means is Jews and Gentiles, those from the remotest part of the world, his death was for many, a great many of them. From every tribe, tongue, and nation, but a specific group of people whom the Father had given to him and for whom he came into the world to lay down his life for them. The death of Jesus was a limited atonement, a purposeful, definite, and successful atonement of the sins of his people. So at this point in our study, what we have seen is that the Father has elected his people in eternity. The Son has come into the world to die for their sins But now the great question is, how does this salvation come to his people? And how does it enter into their lives? What we have discussed so far is what is called objective salvation, which is outside of ourselves. But how does salvation become subjective? How does this great salvation now come to us in time and in our own lives? And this is what brings us to the fourth of the letters in the acrostic tulip, which is the I, which is irresistible grace. Salvation now comes to us in irresistible grace. This is what Jesus speaks of here in verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice. In contrast to what he just said in verse 26, You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now he says, my sheep hear my voice, which is to say, my sheep hear my voice, and they are the ones who believe in me. Jesus speaks here of the powerful voice, the voice of Jesus that speaks to each and every one of his sheep. All that the Father has given to him, he speaks to each one of them. And when he speaks with his omnipotent, irresistible grace and power, every one of his sheep hear. My sheep, he says, they hear my voice. He speaks to them in the gospel. He speaks to them by the Holy Spirit through the word. It is often called the effectual call of Jesus because it comes from his omnipotence and it always accomplishes his purpose, which is to bring his people to repentance and faith. It is when we hear the gospel in the church being preached or when we read the Bible ourselves alone And we begin to realize that we are hearing a voice above the preacher. And we are hearing a voice beyond the pages of any book, the Bible. We are hearing the voice of the one who is higher than all others. We are hearing the powerful voice of Jesus speak to us in his word. The word becomes living and powerful within 
irresistible to our hearts. We cannot brush it aside. We cannot ignore it any longer. It begins to have its authority over us. We recognize that it is truth and we begin to believe all that it says and we must follow it. It is the powerful voice of Jesus speaking to us from heaven through his own word. One of the characteristics of sheep is that they always hear the voice of their shepherd. And when the shepherd speaks to his sheep and calls them, they always hear his voice and they follow him. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus said back in verse 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. And this is the way it is. The good shepherd speaks and the sheep hear his voice in the word. This is what we find often in the Gospels when Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee. He saw Peter and Andrew casting their nets into the sea. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and began to follow him. He said to Matthew in the tax office, follow me. Matthew immediately arose and followed him. He came to Zacchaeus and he spoke to him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, hurry and come down for today I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him gladly. They heard the voice of Jesus speaking irresistibly with this effectual power and it entered their souls and they immediately left everything and followed him We forget how powerful the voice of Jesus is when he speaks in this way. In the beginning in the creation he spoke and all things in heaven and earth came into being. A creative power came from his word. When he came to the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus was dead in the tomb for four days and a stench was coming from his body. And how did Jesus raise him from the dead? By his own voice. He spoke and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he who was dead came forth. A creative, life-giving, resurrection power that comes forth in the voice of Jesus. We could ask a couple of questions. Could Lazarus have resisted the voice of Jesus when he commanded him to come forth from that tomb? The answer is no. He was a dead man in the tomb and there was nothing he could do to resist that powerful voice of Jesus. Was there anything Lazarus needed to do To assist Jesus in his resurrection. The answer once again is no. Jesus needed no assistance from Lazarus to raise him from the dead. His voice had life-giving resurrection power within it. And just as we are physically, just as Lazarus was physically dead in that tomb, so we by nature are spiritually dead under the power of our sins. And when Jesus speaks 
his voice to us through his word. We are as passive in our death as Lazarus was in his. We can neither resist and we do not need to assist the power of his voice. His voice raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We who have heard his voice in the gospel, we, not, we may not know when it took place, and we may not know even how it took place. But one thing we know, we were once dead, and now we are alive. We once did not believe in Jesus, but now we do believe in him, and we love him, and we follow him. There is the outward call of the gospel which is when we hear the word of the gospel outwardly on our ears only, and the outward call of the gospel can and often is resisted. But we speak here of the inward call of Christ through the gospel upon our hearts. And when he speaks in this way, he speaks from omnipotence and it is always effectual and saving and it cannot be resisted. The voice of Jesus makes us into new creations. The voice of Jesus puts new spiritual life within us. It comes with a new birth, with a regeneration it gives a new heart and brings us to faith, repentance, and conversion. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead, the dead, shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live We see the response to hearing the voice of Jesus. It is that they follow him. In verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. To follow him means, after we hear his voice in the gospel, it means that we begin to obey his voice. We begin to keep his commandments. We begin to live according to his will. The verbs here in verse 27, the verb hear and the verb follow. My sheep hear and they follow. Those verbs both are in the present tense, which means that we are always continuously hearing his voice and we are always continuously following him. So to hear his voice and follow him is not just something that takes place in conversion when we first become believers. But this is the ongoing, continuing life of a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. And it is always taking place. He is always speaking to us from heaven in his word. And we are to always be hearing his voice. And we are to be always following him in time and even in to eternity. What he says we will do. 
not perfectly in this life, but we do so with delight and great love for him. This is why it is such a central part of the Christian life to be in the church where the word of God is being preached and to be reading the scriptures every day in private so that you might keep yourself continually hearing the voice of Jesus that you might continue to follow him. Those who neglect the means of grace, how do they hear and follow the voice of Jesus? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So what Jesus here is anticipating as he speaks of his sheep hearing his voice, he is anticipating his ascension back into heaven when he will sit at the right hand of God And from that glorious throne, he will speak to his sheep on earth in every tribe and tongue and nation. And he will speak with his power and gather them in. An arresting voice of Jesus and his sheep hear his voice. You remember what happened with Saul of Tarsus when he was on the road to Damascus and he was breathing out threats of persecution against the Christians. A light flashed from heaven and Paul heard a voice and he said, I fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me. He was arrested on that road and he heard the voice arrested by the voice of the risen Christ speaking to him. The same thing happens to us now. Not so dramatically and outwardly but through the gospel, the voice of Jesus arrests us in our life of sin and turns us from it that we believe and follow him. It is the irresistible grace of God that comes to us by the voice of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So we've seen the first four doctrines of grace now that we have been called into the Christian life by the voice of Jesus. The question is, how do we make it to the end? And how do we persevere from the beginning to the end of the Christian life? That brings us to the last of the five doctrines, which is the P in TULIP. And it is the P stands for perseverance, the perseverance of the saints. It would be more accurate for us to add to this God's preservation of the saints because the two must be together. We persevere because God preserves us. Left to ourselves, none of us would persevere. We would all fall away because the powers against us are too great. We are enabled to persevere only by God's preserving grace. Once we are truly saved, we are always saved, and there is nothing that can ever separate us from the love of Christ. Our security does not rest upon ourselves. Our security rests upon the power of God. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed to us. Jesus teaches here the preservation 
the eternal security of his saints in five ways in these verses. First, in the beginning of verse 28, where he says, and I give eternal life to them. This is in the present tense, which means that he gives in the present. Eternal life is a present reality for all of his sheep. He gives eternal life to us now. As soon as we believe in Jesus at that very moment, he gives to us eternal life. We do not need to wait until we die and enter into heaven to receive eternal life. We receive eternal life now in the present. I give to them now eternal life. This is what John so clearly teaches throughout the gospel. John chapter 3 and verse 36. He who believes in the Son has present tense eternal life. John chapter 6, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. John 6, verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And John 5 and verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. We should be clear in our thinking about eternal life. Eternal life is eternal. Once it is given, once one receives eternal life, he has that eternal life for all eternity. Otherwise, it would not be eternal life. And the life that Jesus gives here is eternal life. I give eternal life to them. Eternal life does not last for a few years and then fade away. If you had it at one point in your life and then a few years later, You no longer had it, whatever you thought you had. It was not this eternal life, because this eternal life is eternal. It is his gift. He says, I give eternal life to them. It is a permanent gift. He does not give and then take away. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This eternal life can never be revoked. It can never be withdrawn. It is a permanent gift of eternal life. Eternal life is not given to us on a trial basis. As if he gives it to us and then we see how well we do, how well do we perform, and if we do well enough, then we may keep the eternal life. But if we do not do well enough, then we lose the eternal life. No. Eternal life is eternal. It can never be taken. It can never be removed from us. It can never be extinguished. It can never be diminished. Once it is given, it is ours for eternity. Back in the beginning, back in the middle of verse 27, Jesus says of his sheep, he says, I know them. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. He means I know each one of them personally, intimately. I know them lovingly from eternity. I know them savingly 
He means, I know everything about them. I know their sins and their failures. I know every one of their weaknesses and every one of their wanderings, their stumblings and their falls. We ourselves are sometimes surprised by the power of remaining sin within us, but Jesus is never surprised because he knows us completely and exhaustively and every sin that we shall ever commit. He says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And though he knows us in this way, and he knows every sin about us. Yet he also says, I lay down my life for the sheep. He lays down his life for us, though he knew all of our sins. And he says, I know them. And then he also says, I give eternal life to them. I know everything about them. And yet I still give them eternal life. This can cause doubts within us because we say to ourselves, well, if he really knew who I am and if he really knew my sins, then how could he give me this eternal life? But this is a gift not by our works, but by his free and unmerited grace for us. He knows us, everything about us, and yet he gives us this eternal life. He knows every thicket that we will be caught in along the way to heaven. Every briar that will be stuck in our wool, all of our falls and all of our wanderings off in foolishness. But he is the good shepherd who will never leave or abandon his sheep. And he knows how to restore us. I know them, he says. I give them eternal life. Jesus speaks of our preservation in a second way in the next phrase. He says, and they, in verse 28, I give eternal life to them. And then in the next phrase, another assurance of our preservation. He says, and they shall never perish. To perish is to be sent into the eternal death and fire of hell. To perish is to pay the penalty of one's sins under the wrath of God forever. But Jesus says something of his sheep here, something that can never be and something that can never happen to any one of his sheep. He says they can never perish. There are some things that are impossible in this world. It is impossible for God to lie And it is impossible for any of his sheep to perish. We pass through many dangers in this life, but we will never face the danger of perishing. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. Many times we fall along the way. We make missteps. And perhaps sometimes we even wound ourselves, but we will never be abandoned by the good shepherd. Psalm 37 and verse 
23. Perhaps we should look at the passage for a minute. Psalm 37 and verse 23. Psalm 37 and verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, when he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong. He shall not be abandoned because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Verse 28, for the Lord loves justice, and he does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever. They shall never perish, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. And so here, even in this psalm, we see the voice of Jesus with the same assurance of all of his sheep, they shall never perish. Back in John chapter 10. A third way in which Jesus assures our preservation is found at the end of verse 28, where he says, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. This is what Jesus does with us in our salvation. He places us into his mighty hands for protection and safety. Our names are inscribed upon the palms of his hands. His hands are mighty and powerful. The Bible often speaks of the mighty hand of the Lord and the mighty hand of Jesus embraces us and covers us in salvation. It would take someone stronger with a stronger hand than Jesus to come and snatch any one of his sheep out of his hand. But there is no one stronger than him. He is the creator of all things. He upholds all things by the word of his power. All power in heaven and earth has been given into his hands. He has been raised to the highest place of power in heaven. There is none that is more powerful than him. And once we are placed into the hands, the mighty hands of Jesus, wrapped in his hands with his infinite power, there is no one that can ever snatch us out of his hands. There is no demon that can snatch us out. There is no man who can come. No false prophet can ever deceive us and take us out of his hand. There is no sin or temptation. There is no power or principality. There is nothing present or to come. There is nothing within ourselves or anything that we can even do. Not even our doubts and our remaining unbelief. There is nothing, there is no one who can ever snatch us out of his hands. We notice He says, my hand, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. He speaks personally of his own hand. He has not handed over our care to the angels. 
He himself personally holds us in his hand. The one who has all power is the one who holds us in his hand. And there is no one who can snatch us out of his hand. A fourth way in which he assures us of salvation and our eternal security is found in the protection, the power of God the Father. In verse 29, he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one shall snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus speaks of his Father in heaven as God, and he says that he is greater than all. He is the God, and there is the only God, there is none other who is like him. He is Elohim, the God of all the creation, the God of infinite power. Listen to some verses that speak of the greatness of God. He is greater than all, Jesus says. Moses in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11, the song of Moses. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 24. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as thine? And then Deuteronomy 33 that we read earlier, verse 26. There is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. Verse 29, blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall cringe before you and you shall tread upon the high places. Who can comprehend the safety, the security that belongs to us with a God like this, greater than all? And we are in his mighty hands. We are as safe here tonight in our salvation as if we had been in heaven for 10,000 years. And so we ought to have great confidence And thanksgiving and praise, we have been given eternal life. And there is nothing that can ever cause us to perish. And we shall never be snatched out of the hands of the Father and the Son. And even when death comes, what will death be? But it will be our entrance into heaven. And he will take us by his hand and bring us into his glory Psalm 62 and verse 11. Once God has spoken twice, I have heard this, that power belongs to God. He is greater than all in power, wisdom, love. There is no one who can snatch us out of the Father's hand. There is a kind of double security here. As if Jesus' sheep are held in the all-powerful hands of Jesus. And then God the Father comes and he places his hands of omnipotence over the hands of Jesus so that we are doubly embraced. We are doubly secured by double omnipotence. The Father and the Son embracing us and there is no one who can snatch us 
out of their hands. It's as, it's as, it, it is as if in the plan of eternity, the question arose, how will they be preserved and how will they be protected to the end and to their final salvation? And the son said, I will take them into my hands so that no one can snatch them out of my hands. But at the very same time, the father said the very same thing. And so they said, well, we will both do it. The father and the son, we will both hold them in our mighty hands so that no one can ever snatch them out of our hands. This eternal security that Jesus speaks of here, who could ever ask for more security than this? What more could he possibly say than what he has said right here? It is confirmed in so many other scriptures. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11, I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And Peter says in chapter 5 and verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you by his eternal grace will himself perfect, confirm and strengthen and establish you. We are in the hands of the Son and the hands of the Father. Our life is hidden with God in Christ. Colossians 3 and verse 3. The last assurance of our salvation is found in verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He declares his unity with the Father. He is one with the Father in all things. There is nothing the Father has that he does not have. He is one in essence with him in the one God, two persons in the one God. But his words in verse 30 must be taken in the context of everything that he has just said in the previous arguments regarding the eternal security of his people. So when he says in verse 30, I and the Father are one, he means I and the Father, we are one in our purpose regarding the sheep. We are one in aim we are in unity in our mission, in our goal. We have the same will for the sheep that I would give my life for them. They would hear my voice. They would be saved. And they would be safe and secure for all eternity in everything that I have said to you. I and my Father are one. In everything that I have promised in regard to their security, I and my Father are of one will and one purpose. All of these promises of security are no license for sin. 
because we are speaking of those who follow Jesus. In verse 27, if someone will say, but I have seen many fall away from following Jesus, the answer is yes, it is true. But we are not speaking here of the stony ground here. And we are not speaking here of the thorny ground here. We are speaking of the one who hears the word in an honest and good heart and holds it fast and bears fruit with perseverance. The will of the Father and the Son are the same. We turn back to John chapter 6 for a moment. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 39 and 40. Jesus says, verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, the will of the Father, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Christ in his will, he will raise up all of his people. He will lose nothing, but raise it all up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up. On the last day, I and the Father are one, and the will of my Father is my will as well in regard to the salvation of all my people. So back to John chapter 10. And we have seen all five of the doctrines of grace, and we can see how they are tied together. And one leads to the next. In our state of total depravity, we are all perishing in our sin under the judgment of God, and we are unable to do anything from ourselves for salvation. We are lost and ruined in sin. But God says, I will not allow all of them to perish. I will make a way of salvation for them. And in my love and in my kind, sovereign will, I will elect some of them to be saved and I will entrust them to my beloved Son for their salvation. And then the Son says, I will go to the cross and I will lay down my life for them in that atonement and I will pay the penalty for the sheep. And then... I will send my irresistible grace to them and every one of them will hear my voice and they will follow me and they will come to me in faith. And then my father and I, we will preserve them with our power to the end to ensure their final salvation. What can we say to all of this glorious plan of salvation? There is only one response that we can make. Solo Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory for everything, the great things that he has done. Let's pray. Father and gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your blessed truth that comes to us from the Son of God himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, come and take your word 
Make it real, living, powerful in our hearts tonight. Give us great confidence that we should have in his wonderful salvation. May we rest in faith and may we have peace and comfort and joy in believing in the gospel. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bless the elements now of the Lord's Supper to us and give us thoughts of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, who has come to lay down his life for the sheep. We thank you. We pray that you would hear us. In Jesus' name, amen.